Past the hills of what valley and the Wind River Windmill sits a small little town blanketed in snow named Wyville. A grinchy grouch named Grimly schemed up on Mount Grumpy's cliff. Could he ruin these wise Christmas with the simple question, what if? What if could be a wonderful question, you see. It can push us to be better, both you and me. But what Grimly knew as he came down that day with his grinchy fury was what if could quickly turn into a question filled with fear and worry. Why, hey there, Wendy Lee, why? Oh, why, hello, Stu. Are you hanging Christmas lights? Why, I sure am. You know, when you're the tallest Y in town, a lot of people ask you to hang lights. Yeah, but it's okay. I'm really excited, though, because we have our super cool Christmas Eve spectacular coming up. Yeah, it's too bad, though. What's too bad, Grimly? Well, what if a big blizzard comes through, huh? What if all the wind blows down your lights, huh, no. Stu? Yeah, and what if the snow falls on your house and the roof collapses, Wendy? What? Uh, yeah. You, you really think that could happen? Well, sure it could. I mean, what if it snows so hard the ice in the pond doesn't even hold that? Oh, no! I guess I never really thought about it snowing. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, maybe I just shouldn't put up lights. Exactly. I mean, what's the point of putting up all these shining lights if the snow's just going to tear them down? Yeah, yeah and I was going to have people come over, but what's the point of inviting people in if they can just get hurt? Exactly. Oh, this is terrible. Christmas is canceled. Ah, the whole thing! Hey, what's going on, guys? What? Nothing, Jonathan. Go away. <laughs> well, Grimley said, well, what if there's a blizzard? Our lights will be ruined. And our roofs would fall in. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, I don't know if you noticed, but we're in an auditorium. Oh. You had to ruin it. Oh, I guess I forgot about that. Yeah. We don't have to worry about a snowstorm. Right, yeah. Honestly, I think if anybody has a reason to be worried, it'd be Grimly over here. Wait, what? Well, because, you know, we only have this series for a few more weeks, what? and then we're going to have to tear down this set, and your cave's going to be gone. My cave? But, well, wait a second. What about Steve? Oh, me? I have a real house. Oh. Even the narrator had no reason to be wary. I've got a voiceover gig starting in January. Nobody cares! Yeah, and I'll just help in Kids World. Boy, Wendy, I'll come with you. I don't want to be homeless. I can help in Kids World. Well, come here, kids. Let's play in traffic. See? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we're talking about Grinches. And uh, we had no idea there was going to be a new Grinch movie coming out as we did the series, but that worked out pretty well, huh? Uh, it was almost like free advertising. We're pretty excited about that. Um, but here's the way we're sort of riffing off the Dr. Seuss classic. Just like uh, the Grinch tried to steal Christmas from Whoville, we're just sort of recognizing that each of us has some things in our life um, that left to their, left, you know, left as they are, they would steal our joy away at Christmas time, right? As a matter of fact, we're just saying that's our definition of a Grinch. A uh, definition of a Grinch is something that steals away our joy at Christmas time, takes away that warm, fuzzy, transcendent, fulfilling thing that we want to experience. And today we're talking about uh, worry. Worry is the Grinch that we're going to be talking about. Now, I just want to say, in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, that I uh, am a terrible worrier. I have a huge problem with worry, a, a current huge problem uh, with worry. And I say that because uh, if you're a new springer and you're 
kind of used to the way we do things around here, um, you're not really surprised. You understand that when my dad gets up and gives a talk or when I get up and give a talk, we're willing to just talk about stuff that we deal with, problems that, that we face and challenges that we have personally. Uh, but if you're maybe from a different church and the pastor only gets up and preaches about stuff, if they've personally conquered it, well, um, this is gonna be different for you because I have a real problem with worry and a current ongoing problem with worry. It's probably you know pathological. Uh, but to... You know, one illustration that my dad used to, used to use when he was preaching about worry that I really identified with as a kid uh, was he talked about this lady who was terrified that somebody was going to break into her home. Every night, whatever creaks and rattles and noises that were in the house just drove her insane because she was afraid somebody was going to break in. Now, her husband was a real light sleeper, and so the fact that she startled every time there was a noise, well, that bugged him. But worse than that, every time there was a noise, she would make him get up out of bed and go check the house and make sure everything was okay. This goes on for 10 years, a full decade. Every time there's any kind of little squeak or rattle in the house, he has to get up out out of bed and go check the house out. And uh, he's kind of fed up with it. But one night, there's a noise in the living room, and she says, honey, get up and go check it out, see what's going on. And he's kind of muttering to himself. He's done this a million times. He goes in the living room, and sure as the world, there is a burglar in the living room making off with their television set. And he says, sir, would you mind putting that TV down and coming in the bed? I'd like to introduce you to my wife. She's been waiting to meet you for 10 years. This is my problem with worry. There are a lot of things in my life that I've been waiting to meet for 10 years that may never materialize. I tend to get so concerned about what might happen or what could happen that it takes away from my ability to really live a good life now. And if you've experienced that or dealt with it, then hopefully today's talk will be uh, meaningful because we're going to talk about why worry gets such a, a place in our lives, even though none of us want it. And we're going to talk about what we can do about it. Um, and I'll just tell you briefly, this is how bad worry is in my life. If you want to get an idea of how much Jonathan struggles with this, um, I was preparing for this talk, and I knew that giving this talk, there was a specific prop that I wanted to use. I was going to bring a prop on stage. Now, if, again, if you're a new springer, this is not surprising to you, right? Because you know Jonathan likes to bring props on stage. I've had everything from a little fishing lure to a queen-size bed. At this point, there are no surprises, right? You're kind of expecting something under a sheet. Um, but the problem that I had with it this week is I, I set it up to be delivered in plenty of time for the weekend, but I got a notice that it was not going to be on time. As a matter of fact, I got a notice that it might not be here for the weekend, and I started just stressing out. I mean, it really was driving me nuts, and I started driving everybody around me nuts. Every time I talked to my wife, I'm like, what do I do if it doesn't get here? I mean, and it's really only a small part of the talk that it's here for, and yet I was going nuts about this. I'm like, what if it's not there? I'm going to have to rework that part of the talk, and I don't have a plan B. And then earlier this week, uh, we had our Christmas luncheon here at the church and happened to be sitting at the same table that my dad was at. And he said, how's everything coming for the weekend talk? And I said, oh, it's terrible. The whole thing's falling apart on me. I don't, I don't know how, how I'm going to do this because I, I ordered this prop to arrive at a certain time and then, you know, it's not going to arrive when it's supposed to and I don't know what to do about this. And my dad said, hold up. So you're telling me you're stressed out about your prop. You are worried about your sermon on worry. Now, that's how sick I am, <laughs> right? Earlier this year, I went through a very prolonged phase of worry, um, and that was because my wife and I decided after some time, uh, we'd, we'd thought about it and considered it, and we finally decided that it was time to sell our house that we lived in for five or six years. And uh, we, you know, we decided that we were going to sell that one, lease for a little while, and decide where we were going to eventually end up. 
And uh, so we reached out to our realtor, who is a God follower and New Springer and just an incredible businessman who did a wonderful job listing it for us. And that went so smoothly. It just sold right away. Just as soon as it went on the market, it was sold. Um, But if you've never sold a house before, uh, I'll educate you a little bit on this. If you have sold a house, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When that contract is in front of you and you sign that contract to to sell the house, with the last flourish of the pen, you descend into a level of Hades called escrow. So now, for a period of weeks, your life is on hold because not only do you have to find a new place to live, you do not know whether that deal is going to go through or not because there's a bunch of stuff that's gonna happen. An inspector is gonna come poke through your house and climb in your attic and look through everything and try to find out anything that could possibly be wrong with the property. An appraiser is gonna come determine whether or not the house is worth what you're trying to sell it for. People are gonna come put these things in your basement and check to see if there's radon gas circulating around there, you know, and all these different things threaten to blow up the deal. Anything goes wrong, the whole thing could go sideways and yet you have to find a new place to live because after all once you go to the closing table you know you're kind of out of there right and on top of everything else the the buyer wanted a six-week closing right now I would have preferred a one-week closing because seven days of life-altering stress is about all I can handle but we're talking about six weeks a full month and a half And beyond that, when we found the house that we were going to lease for a little while, they needed a commitment from us right away. So for almost a month, I I felt responsible for two houses. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before, but, but having two houses attached to your name, you start to feel the walls closing in on you. Right? Because you think, what happens if this deal falls apart? I drove my wife crazy. I'm pretty sure I drove our realtor crazy. I was constantly firing off emails. What happens if the appraisal doesn't happen on time? What happens if the inspection finds stuff that we can't repair? Right? And it was driving me absolutely nuts. By the way, if you want to know how the story ends, after the six weeks, everything worked out beautifully. I think God was just looking out for us because there were no hiccups and no bumps along the road. But for six weeks, Jonathan was not with it. I was not here. I was absolutely, I mean, here's the deal. Those of you who've been at New Spring for a long time, you've watched my hairline gradually recede. <laughs> but I would have more hair if we hadn't sold our house this. I mean, it really did it, 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 did it quickly to me, right? So I just want to talk to you about a few things that I noticed. If I look back on that month of my life where I was so stressed out, I noticed three things that worry did to me. And maybe you've noticed it does this to you too. But I first noticed that it absorbs my attention. When I'm worried I sort of check out. So I'm physically there, but emotionally and mentally, I am wherever the thing that I'm worried about is. That's where I am. So um, this happened during the summer. We, hold our, we, we sold our house during the summer. So that's when our girls are home from school. And it's a time when normally I'd be connecting with, with my daughters and we'd be doing fun stuff and um, you know, we'd be engaging in that time because normally you know, with the school year, you know how it is, there's, there's less chance to connect. But this summer, I don't have a lot of memories about connecting with my girls. You know why? Because I was physically there, but mentally and emotionally, I was at a closing table somewhere waiting for it to all finally work out okay. My, my attention was absorbed. So nobody really got the best part of Jonathan because I was really checked out. Beyond all of that, I also learned that it soured my mood. If you've ever been really worried, you understand that you can kind of start to feel depressed, you can feel agitated and frustrated. I'd like to believe that I'm usually kind of a teddy bear, but during that, four, during that month, I transitioned from a teddy bear into a grizzly bear. Right? My best friends did not know whether to duck or pucker when I came around. You know, is, is, Jonathan gonna, is it going to be good Jonathan today or is it going to be bad Jonathan? 
Neuropsychologists tell us that when we're worried and we, we rehearse that worry in our mind, which we'll talk about here in a few moments, when we rehearse that worry in our mind, it puts us on the very edge of anger. The pump is primed for anger and frustration and agitation, right? So it sours my mood. And by extension, it tends to strain my relationships. I was not a very good husband during that month, and I wasn't a very good father. And when you don't bring the best of yourself to your relationships, then it creates a a wall or a barrier in those relationships that then has to be repaired, So looking back on that month of my life, I've come up with this conclusion, and maybe this would be meaningful for you as well, but I've come up with the conclusion that when worry gets the best of me, nothing else does or no one else does. When worry gets the best of me, then my wife doesn't get the best of me, my kids don't get the best of me, my job, my passion, my purpose, my ministry, none of that gets the best of me, and I don't want that to continue happening. I want to develop a better plan for dealing with worry. And that's the thing that I will promise you um, today. I'm not going to give you Jonathan's plan for how to deal with worry because it would be worthless because Jonathan is struggling with worry. Instead, I want to show you what God says about worry. And this is a journey that I'm myself on. I'm with you, a fellow learner trying to work through this in my own, in my own life. So I had a couple questions that I wanted to answer when I was prepping for this talk. One was, why do I let worry mess with me so much? Because here's what I know. I know that I do not want to worry. And maybe this is something that you would agree with, right? None of us wakes up in the morning thinking, I can't wait to spend all day absolutely, you know, beside myself with anxiety. It just happens. So if I don't want to worry, why does it end up getting so much much power in my life? And then what can I do about it, right? So those are the two questions that we're going to look at today. The first one is, why do I put up with it? As I just said, I don't want worry in my life, so why why do I give it room mentally and emotionally? Well, here's the answer that I came up with. I think that I tend to allow myself to worry as much as I do because it feels like the responsible thing to do. Worry feels like the responsible thing to do because if you think about it, it seems like irresponsible people that don't worry, right? Somebody has a ton of debt, they're in a bad financial position, and they show up, they just bought a brand new pickup truck, and you ask them, aren't you a little concerned about finances? You just bought this new pickup truck, and they say, I'm not worried about it. That's irresponsible, right? Or somebody who's a chain smoker and you say, what about your health? What about the risk of cancer? I'm not worried about it. Well, that seems irresponsible. So at that moment, I start to feel pretty good about myself. Well, I worry for a good reason. I worry because I'm so responsible. Responsible people worry. That's the responsible thing to do. And it's at least I'm doing something, right? I mean, it's a problem. I may not be able to change it, but at least I'm doing something. Well, the, the, the Bible the Bible even has a, let me, I told you that this is how sick I am. I'm so sick that I have used a verse before in the Bible to justify my worrying. You want to see this verse? It's kind of cool. <clears throat> this is in the book of Proverbs, and this is what the Bible says. A prudent person or a wise person foresees danger and takes precautions. It's the simpleton that goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. So at that point, I say, God, see, I'm a prudent person. I'm a wise person. I'm worrying, but at least what I'm doing is I'm foreseeing danger and taking precautions. And anybody in my uh, sphere can tell you that. Jonathan can find the worst case scenario in any situation and get completely locked into it. So this is what I'm doing. I may be a worrier, but it's just because I'm obviously so wise. Um, but this is what this is what I needed to learn and this is what's been helpful for me this week there's a difference between concern and worry so there's a dividing line in this world between the things that Jonathan can do something about 
the things that Jonathan can change or impact, and the things that Jonathan has no ability to change or impact or make a difference in, right? So concern is investing some of myself in things that I have the power to change. Investing some of myself in things that I have the power to do something about. Foreseeing danger and taking precautions. A precaution is something that I actually have the power to do. I actually have the power to change this part of my life. Worry, on the other hand, is investing large pieces of myself in things that I cannot do anything about. So I'm writing checks to a part of my life that I can't change, and I'm getting no return on my investment. So we could say that wisdom, then, is looking toward the future and doing what I can do, right? Worry, on the other hand, is living in the future and being obsessed with what I can't do. There's a difference between taking a good hard look at the future coming down the road and making the best precautions that I can. There's a difference between that and living in the future. So I'm absorbed. Remember we talked about being physically there but emotionally and mentally not there. So emotionally and mentally, I am living in the future dealing with something that I can't deal with, trying to change something that I can't change. Now, if you identify with any of the struggle that I just talked about. Maybe you don't deal with worry the way that I do, but if you deal with it some, um, you should know that, that fortunately for us, Jesus actually addresses this problem. Jesus actually speaks to it specifically. Um, so God hasn't left us alone to deal with this. He's given us some very, specific, um, uh, some very specific instructions. So here's what Jesus says. In Matthew 6, he says, this is why I tell you not to worry. And he's gonna ask us a very probing question. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Crossing over into that line and things that I can't change or do anything about. He's saying, Jonathan, if you were to spend your life worried that it's gonna be too short, and you rehearse that in your mind. What if my life is shorter than it should be? What if my life is shorter than it should be? If I spend my entire life worrying about that, can, can all that energy that I've invested add a single second to my lifespan? And, and what Jesus is saying is, no, of course not. I can't, I can't do that. That's, out of, that. that's way beyond my pay grade. And so it's something that I'm investing myself in. But the point that he's saying is there is no return on the investment. And then Jesus would go on to say, if your worry can't accomplish a little thing like adding a second to your life, then why worry about big things, right? So I want to talk to you for a minute about the worry cycle. Um, when we first moved to which, the Wichita area, when I first came to work at New Springs, so this has been um, almost nine years ago, uh, I was almost 30 and I had put on some weight and I decided I was going to try to take better care of myself physically. I was going to you know, exercise and I was going to you know, bulk up, which you can tell uh, never happened. Um, and uh, so I did some outdoor exercise things, but we also, my wife and I went and took a tour of the local gym, the local rec center there in our area. And, uh, you know, went in and toured this really wonderful facility. They had a great swimming pool. I thought oh, I could go swimming and, uh, and, and exercise. And they had these basketball courts that looked great. They had a wonderful running track upstairs. And they had a weight room where you could lift weights and really build muscle. As you can tell, I never uh, went in that room. Um, next to the weight room, they have a little torture chamber. That It's almost as though somebody watched a hamster on a wheel in a hamster cage and thought, how can we adapt this for human beings, Right? 
because they have conveyor belts that you walk on so that you walk but you don't get anywhere or you run on the conveyor belt but you don't get anywhere. More insidious than that, they have stairs that you climb and you never get out, you never get, go up in altitude. It's like the opposite of an escalator, right? The escalator you stand on and it moves you. This is a boon to mankind, right? But the, the stair climbers, you step but you don't get anywhere. I don't know who came up with that. It's a mean thing. But over in the corner, they have these things. They have these exercise bikes, right? So that you ride a bike, but you don't get anywhere. And it didn't make much sense to me. But in the little guide that I found online, which you have to be careful with the guides to physical health that you find online, I'll tell you why. I found this guide. It was going to help me lose weight. But they had a, a, a beginner a moderate and a very aggressive workout plan. And because I'm so competitive, I went straight to the aggressive workout plan, right? And so it said that to start with, you ride six miles on, on the bike, which if you've ever ridden one of these, you understand that six miles is, well, it's, it's quite a bit. Um, so, uh, but as long as I was looking at this little monitor here that tells me how far I've gone, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? I had, you know, I'd set my stuff down, I set my little water bottle down, I get on the bike, I start riding, you know, it's one mile, two miles, and three miles, and I'm starting to, you know, die, um, I get up to four miles and five miles, and the guy comes over and asks, you know, if I need a paramedic. And uh, finally, I get to six miles. There's the little fist pump of victory, right? And I get off the bike, and I'd been focused on the distance the whole time. But now, as I get up, I stand there, and I look around the room, and I think, I am exactly where I started. There's my water bottle. I remember setting that down before I got on the bike. And I'm thinking to myself, folks, six miles. I could have been almost to Krispy Kreme by now. (laughs) So I don't ride exercise bikes anymore. I have a spiritual objection to exercise bikes. And that is this. An exercise bike is all of the energy and none of the traction. Right? I'm, I'm pedaling as hard as I can, but I'm not getting anywhere. And that is exactly what worry is. Worry is all of the energy and none of the traction. I'm investing a ton of myself. I'm not getting anywhere. Now, why? I call it a cycle because the problem is, and you know this if you've been in this case, it's not as though you just ask yourself the question, what if, once. You don't just say, what if this happens once. You ask yourself that question a hundred times. You don't, just, you don't just say, if only, if only this would happen, or if only that had happened. You don't just say that to yourself once, you say it to yourself a hundred times. It's like a cycle. It's like we rehearse it in our mind over and over and over and over and over again. And do you know why we do that? Because since we're asking ourselves questions we don't have good answers to, we're basically stuck, and we're just investing a lot of energy. And here's the thing, we're worrying because it feels like at least it's something we can do. We're in a part of our life where there's nothing we can do, and so we're investing energy, right? You ride an exercise bike because you can't ride your regular bike. You can't go ride in your neighborhood. It's snowy, it's icy, so you go to the gym and you ride the exercise bike because you can't ride your regular bike. The reason that we get on the worry cycle is because we can't do anything, so we just occupy our mind rehearsing questions that we don't have good answers for. Now, Jesus had something to say about this. He said, don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. And another way of saying that would be, would be these things drain the mental energy of people who don't believe in God. 
Well, that makes perfect sense because to me, it's a drain, right? It's all that energy down the drain, no return on my investment. I feel that very deeply. So if you're in this room and you struggle like I do with being on that worry cycle, then the big question is how do we get off the worry cycle? What is the off-ramp? How do we, how do we take that moment where we catch ourselves investing all of this energy and go in a different direction with it? Well, the good news is um, the Bible speaks to this, and we're going we're gonna to talk about three things that you can do when you find yourself caught in the worry cycle. If you're, if, if, if you're a note taker and you've got a pen and pencil, mascara, something that can make a mark on the page, right? Um, here we go. Here's, here's three things that you can do to get off the worry cycle, three things that I'm trying to work on in my life right now. Here's the first one. The first thing the Bible tells us to do is to talk to God about it right? Check out what the verse says. Don't worry about anything. This is the Apostle Paul talking in the book of Philippians. Don't worry. Instead, do what? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need. So the Bible's saying that we need to talk to God about what's stressing us out. Now, why is that so important? Well, here's the thing. My problem is that Jonathan tends to talk to Jonathan about things Jonathan can't do anything about. That is what worrying is. Worrying is Jonathan talking to Jonathan about things that Jonathan can't do anything about. Praying is talking to God about something he can do something about. I'm not the supreme ruler of the universe, so there's a lot of stuff that's above my pay grade, but nothing is above God's pay grade. So if I talk to God about it, I'm talking to somebody who really does have the answers. Now, one of the things about that is I have to be willing to set aside my worry long enough to really have a quality conversation with God. Uh, when I first moved here, I had a funny thing happen. I was, I was uh, pulling up to the stoplight at Webb and 21st Street, and this young lady pulled up next to me in her car. She looked like she was maybe uh, 19 or 20, somewhere in there. And she had one of those supersonic um, sound systems, you know, and it was just going ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And my car is kind of bouncing along with it, ba-boom, 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 you know. So I looked over to just see where the source of the sound was coming from. And this lady was in her car and she, was, she had her cell phone up to one ear with one hand and her finger poked in the other ear. And she's trying to have a phone conversation like this, right? And I thought to myself, my goodness, why don't you just turn your radio down while you're trying to have a conversation? And it was as though God spoke to me in that moment and said, well, Jonathan, why don't you turn your worry down when you're trying to talk to me? Because so often, I've got so much worry playing at the edges of my mind that I can't even really have a quality conversation with God. So if you're a worrier like me, maybe you would have the question in your mind, I know I have from time to time, but what if God doesn't respond? What if I'm stuck in the situation and God doesn't answer me? What if God doesn't really care about this part of my life? Well, Jesus speaks to that as well. We can go to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, hey, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? He's basically saying, so your kid asks you for a sandwich, you give them a great big rock and you say, here, go gnaw on this for a while, right? He said, or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? No, of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? What he's saying is, parents, you understand. Now, our kids want a lot of things, but what, when they come to you and they need something, when it's a real need and they ask you for that, you know that it tugs at your heartstrings. It really gets your heart engaged with them because you want to provide for your kids' needs. And he's saying even as sinful, flawed human beings, if, if, it, if it really pulls on our heartstrings when our kid needs something, imagine what it's like for God who is perfect when his kids need something. No, he cares. He does want us to talk to him about it though. Here's the second thing. I said the first thing is we need to talk to God about it. The second thing is this, we need to count our blessings. Right? Look at what the Bible says. Tell God what you need and then thank him for all he has done. 
So we should count our blessings and thank God for what he's done. Well, what is that gonna do for me? If I'm worried, what is counting my blessings gonna do? Well, in this area, it's kind of wonderful that we have some really great science that we can look at because over the last 10 years, um, and, and uh, many of you know that I'm both a pastor and an active student of psychology. In the psychology world, we've been paying a lot of attention the last 10 years to what gratitude does for people. And here's a few things that we've learned. We've learned, first of all, that people who count their blessings stress less. So that makes perfect sense right off the bat with what we just read in the Bible. If we're stressed and we're anxious and we're worried, counting our blessings, we now know from the science, is going to help us stress less. But it doesn't just end there. They also tend to exercise more. They tend to help other people more. They tend to enjoy life more. Their quality of life is better. They tend to sleep better. How many of you like that old movie, White Christmas? Oh my dear, we're going to have to have some sort of like movie night at New Spring and show White Christmas. But you know that song Bing Crosby sings, when, when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of she... Anyhow, my point is that the song is right. You sleep better if you count your blessings. Um, And then also, these folks have better blood pressure and heart health. Now, those are just a few things that I picked from a very, very long list. But the truth is that we were built by God to do better when we're showing gratitude. As a matter of fact, there's a very interesting study that was done some years ago that there there were two groups involved in the study. And one group was asked to pick a time of day that every day for a week at that time, they would write out a list of five things that they were thankful for. And they had to be concrete things. They couldn't be something abstract, like I'm just thankful for my health. It needed to be something specific, like I'm thankful for the car I drive. I'm thankful for the nice dinner that we had uh, last night with so-and-so, right? So here's what they found. At the end of the week, the group that counted their blessings were less depressed, less anxious, and happier than the group that didn't. But it gets better. A month later, they come back to these people. Now, they only had to do this exercise for a week, but a month later, they come back to these people, and a full month later, they were, the group that counted their blessings were still happier, less depressed, and less anxious. And get this, they came back six months later. And at six months, the group that spent a week counting their blessings six months earlier was still happier, less anxious, and less depressed. If you think about the power of that finding, it means that even just a week of being intentional about counting your blessings echoes so far forward in your life that it's still impacting you six months later. It is a big deal to count our blessings, right? The Bible says that we should tell God what we need and then we should thank him for all he's done. It helps us zoom out from the thing that we're worried about. Why does it help us to, be, to, to exercise gratitude? I think it helps us because we get so zoomed in and locked into the thing that we're worried about that being, showing gratitude and thinking about God's blessings helps us to zoom out and see the big picture and realize that God has brought us a very, very long way. God has brought us through a lot of things we were worried about and he's gonna bring us through this as well. All right, I'm almost out of time. Here's the third thing, right? We said the first thing is we need to talk uh, to God about it, right? And then we just talked about the fact that we need to count our blessings. The third thing that we need to do is do the next right thing. Look at what Jesus said. He said, don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. It's a drain for them. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. Now, we don't use that word righteous a whole lot in our culture. It just means to do the right thing. To live righteously means to live rightly, to do the right thing. But to do the next right thing in the present when you're worried about the future is tough. If you're like me, you can get so absorbed in worry that being present right now is very, very difficult, right? And yet this is what God has called us to do, is to move our head out of the clouds of worry and to get it firmly rooted in the now and make the best decision, the wisest decision that we can make about today, about the things that we can do, right? 
I'll tell you a little story about how we can do this and then we'll be done. Because that, that was a big question for me this weekend. How can I get my head out of the clouds of worry and into the now and make a good decision right now? And my mind went back to being a kid. When, when, my, uh, when I was young, my dad was afraid to fly. Up until the time I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, my dad didn't want to uh, fly on an airplane. And yet he was a widely requested speaker all over the country. And so he would travel by car to all these destinations, sometimes as far away as Detroit and, and, and you know, um, Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, long trips in the, in the car. And at the time, uh, my brother and I were homeschooled, so um, we would go along on those trips. And uh, we would be crammed into the back of that little car at the time, we had like a 1985 Volvo 240, which is a little bathtub of a car. And uh, so we're crammed in there for these long trips. But I remember that one, one thing that sticks with me is that for some reason, we always seemed to go through bad weather. We just didn't have good luck as far as that was concerned. It seemed like always on these trips, we would end up going through a bad weather system. And uh, the rain would come down so hard on the windshield. I remember several times from the back seat, I couldn't really see much past the windshield, and it was kind of scaring me. And I've told you, I've, wor- I've been a warrior since I was a little kid, so I would ask these terrible fatalistic questions to my dad as he's driving the car. What happens if we run into another car? What happens if we go careening off of the highway? You know, and I'm asking all these terrifying things, you know, and, event- and my dad's very reassuring and very gracious, but eventually, you know, he needed to say something to sort of, well, you know, shut me up. And, um, but in his loving, gracious nature, my dad looked back at me and he said, Jonathan, it is my job to drive. It's your job to trust me you probably do best if you just get some rest. I'm 37, and a pathological worrier. And yet at this point in my life, I feel that my heavenly father is saying, Jonathan, there's a lot of stuff in life where it is my job to drive. You can wish you were in the driver's seat. You can think about all the things you would do if you were in the driver's seat. You could expend a lot of energy being mentally in the driver's seat when you can't physically be in the driver's seat, but you know what? It is my job to drive. It is your job to trust me. And if you can rest in that, well, this ride's gonna go a whole lot easier. That's not easy, and I'm working on it incrementally. It's a day at a time kind of thing for me as it probably is for you. But it's my commitment to try to trust God when he's in the driver's seat to be able to say, you know what, there are some things above my pay grade, and that's okay. God's brought me a long way. I can talk to God about the things that are stressing me out. I can count my blessings, and there are an awful lot of those blessings. And I can just do the next right thing. I can try to do the wise thing for today. Hopefully this is helpful for you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people. Thank you for the love that you show us to help us make it through difficult times. I know there's a lot of big worries that are in this room right now, health concerns, family concerns, but I pray that you would help us to know that you are at work behind the scenes, working on our behalf, that you love us, that we can talk to you about anything at any time. Help us to rest in the knowledge that you care deeply about us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here this week at New Spring.